For this morning, we're going to continue our sermon study um, with this concept of, of void. And really what we're doing is looking at some of the, the scriptures that give us indication how God really steps into the void of not only history, but the void of our lives. And the story we're going to be looking at this morning comes from Luke chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there to Luke chapter 1. Now, we have officially entered into the Advent season, and Advent is sort of this countdown to Christmas, and who feels ready for Christmas at this point? Anyone? No one, right? And who feels that they have no control over if they're ready for Christmas or not, right? That's one of the the comical things of Advent. It, It sort of brings us into this reality that time is so much out of our control. Uh, Even if you eat all the chocolates of your Advent calendar, it's not going to change when the time comes, does it? And so we enter into the season with this sort of premise that so much of our life is out of control, and yet we so desperately try to control it. And I remember as a kid, it was agonizing counting down the days to Christmas. And one of the ways that I would sort of alleviate some of that agony in my life was instead of waiting for Christmas Day to look at my presents, I would search throughout the house and try to find them. Anyone else do that? Am I the only one guilty of that? I mean, it was, it was bad. I mean, my parents would have to hide presents all through the house and I'd find them every year anyway, but... That was my way of alleviating some of the agony of that waiting for Christmas to come. And I would often open up the presents and I'd play with them for a little bit. Then I'd wrap them back up and hide them again. Anyone else do that? (laughs) Now, I remember as a child too, one of the hard things for me was when I would open a present early before Christmas and it wasn't a present that I would like, I would be disappointed And I'd have to muster up all this energy on Christmas morning to act excited and act like I wanted something. Or when I was a bad kid, I'd just tell my parents straight up, I don't like this present, right? And I find it interesting as well that during Christmas time, everything sort of feels out of our control. It's such a generous season. And we have all these gifts that we receive, yet at the same time, there's been Christmases that I can recall where you come and underneath the Christmas tree, you get a gift and you're disappointed. Who here has ever been disappointed with a gift before, right? I know there's more of you that have been disappointed with a gift before, right? Who here has gotten socks for Christmas, right? You have to be disappointed when you get socks, right? (laughs) And Christmas becomes this strange season because it's where all this generosity comes towards us, where we receive gifts of others, and yet we still have a sense of disappointment. And I'd say that's from when we were kids and even into our adult years. Maybe as a mother or a father, you make this special meal and no one appreciates it the way you thought they would. Or, or maybe you give a gift to your child or your spouse and they don't appreciate the way you thought they would. And so there's this disappointment even in this season that's supposed to be so joyous and celebratory. And I think Christmas really reveals how easily disappointed we can be as humans, doesn't it? We as humans, as creatures, we are so easily disappointed in life, aren't we? 
I mean, who even this last week had something they were disappointed about? All right? There's, there's always these circumstances in our life that keep coming at us, and we just begin to think, and, and we comprehend, and we say, well, this isn't the way I want it to be. This isn't the way I thought it should go. This isn't what I wanted to receive. This isn't what I wanted to go through. And we have all this inner turmoil of disappointment in our lives. And that disappointment then really really creates a void. It creates a longing for something different. It creates a longing for something more. It creates this inner turmoil that we realize disappointment is something we do not want. And so how do we react to disappointment then? What are some of our responses to disappointment? I think one of the major ones that we do when we're disappointed, we often just blame the circumstance, right? This happened and I didn't want it to. Anyone been there before, right? We blame the circumstance. We blame the situation. We say, I am disappointed in what happened, whatever it may be. Um, Another thing we often do is we can blame ourselves as well. When something went wrong or something's not right, so often we can blame ourselves and we say, well, something must be wrong with me. This wouldn't keep happening if I was this type of person or I I am miserable, I'm uh, depressed, I feel guilty, I feel shame, there must be something wrong with me and we blame ourselves. Or or maybe when we we feel disappointment in life, we, we blame the world, and we get very cynical about life and we look at everything, and especially in this season, and we look at the government and we look at health agencies and we look at all these circumstances and we blame the world and we say, this is horrible. This is what, not what it should be. And we get really cynical and bitterness and there's no happiness in the world. And all those responses just fuel our disappointment, don't they? They just fuel it. And what I want to bring up with this this morning is that in the midst of the disappointment in our lives, in the midst of all the things that don't go the way that we think they should, um, this is the exact thing that Jesus actually enters into in the Christmas story. This is the exact circumstance that the incarnation of Jesus comes and God himself comes into history. And so when we celebrate Christmas, it's, it's not just this religious event in history. It's, it's not just the examination of that. But we have to realize the story of Christmas is really the answer to the deepest struggles of our life, to the deepest despair and dif- deepest disappointments we could ever experience. That's what the Christmas story speaks into. And we realize that the story of Jesus and the story of Jesus alone takes away the void that disappointment brings. And so Luke begins his gospel by saying a very unique story. And a story that doesn't really make sense of why he would have it there until we examine it deeper. But Luke himself is writing in this context of disappointment. Now, Luke is writing what we would call an apologetic. And what does apologetic mean? Uh, 
Yeah, defense of the faith, the defense of Scripture. And what Luke has been doing is he's been interviewing all these people who are eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and he's piecing together a story of what actually happened in history. He's writing this historical defense. And yet, he starts with this story that actually has nothing to do with the life of Jesus, Isn't that interesting? Why does he start with this story talking about a priest named Zechariah and Elizabeth? What is going on here? Well, what we're going to see is that Luke is writing the story of disappointment. And he's writing the story of people who are struggling to trust in the midst of not understanding what God was doing. And he's writing into this disappointment. And it's fascinating to me, so often when I talk to people, when we look at reasons why people don't come to faith in Jesus or why they struggle in their faith, there's, there's on one hand an intellectual reason, a philosophical reason. There's, there's things that they just can't comprehend about the Christmas story that makes sense to them or the story of who Jesus was. And there's intellectual challenges. But at the other hand, I know a lot of people who struggle in their faith or, or really struggle to come to faith because of disappointments they've had in their life. When things just don't work out the way that they should. And this is a, a story that's, that's close to my family as well. Uh, my sister, uh, she had run away from God for many years. And it was actually the night before my dad's passing that she came back to faith. And a lot of her story is simple disappointment with God. And a lot of questions that she struggled with and a lot of circumstances she couldn't understand and she resented and had anger towards God because of my dad's suffering. She had resentment and anger towards God because of some of the things that she was going through. And it was really that disappointment in her life that kept her from God. And Luke here speaks to that person. Luke here enters into those circumstances of our life where we feel a deep disappointment, and he says, no, there is something that fills that void. There's hope in the story of God. And so even though you may have went through things in life where you you struggle with the idea of a good God who allow you to go through these things, and even though you have all this pain and disappointment and unanswered question, here's the story. There's good news. And there's something beautiful to realize here. And so what we see this story enter into in Luke comes from an even larger story of history. We're looking at a, a... a story of disappointment and complaint among God's people for many years. And what's fascinating to me is there's this massive void in history where God doesn't speak to his people. And there's this void between what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that void of time is how long? Does anyone know? Well, 400 years, right? 400 years. And that 400 years is separated in our Bibles with two books. What are those two books? The end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament. Yeah, you're right, Malachi and Matthew. Those are the books that really separate the Old and the New Testament. 
they, they give us this indication of a time period, 400 years. Now, what's wild to look at is what is going on in the life of the people of God between this time? Well, we see that the Jews were, were now out of exile, but even in their out-of-exile state, they realized that things were not the way they were supposed to be. We, we read in the Old Testament how Jerusalem and its temple were not living up to its former glory. We realize and we read they didn't have that Davidic king that they were promised. They, they thought Jerusalem was supposed to be this glorious city to the nations, but now it went unnoticed. And so the Jews began to complain. They began to give up on God. They began to ask, where is God in all of this? What happened to the promises of restoration? And along comes the prophet Malachi. And he begins to tackle this issue head on. And he begins to challenge the people and he says, it's not God's fault, it's yours. It's your disobedience as to why the Messiah had not come yet. And he says, in fact, it's God's mercy for not coming because if he did, it would not be for blessing, but it would be for judgment. And so this book of Malachi, which, which sets the precedence for 400 years of waiting, tells us this future hope that would come. And Malachi says that God one day will send a messenger like Elijah to prepare a way. And Malachi 3.1, written 400 years before Jesus is born, says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And so God is coming. He's saying, I'm coming in human history. I'm going to bring a messenger, a prophet, and he will prepare the way of the Lord. Now, what we realize there is how does the Gospel of Mark begin? How does the Gospel of Mark begin? Yeah, it begins with who preparing the way? John the Baptist, right? And so we see these bookends here. We see this bookend of this longing expectation and then a fulfillment found in the Gospels saying, John the Baptist becomes the fulfillment of everything that was longed for. And so after this 400 years of silence, after this 400 years of waiting, we enter into this Christmas story and see all the answers that are found there. And so what do we see? If, if you're a Jew during this time, and you end with all these expectations of the Messiah, and you're waiting for God to work and for God to accomplish something, 400 years, are you getting a little anxious at this point? Are you starting to have a little bit of doubt? Uh, are you beginning to experience some disappointment in what God is able to accomplish? Are you a little less certain of what God is able to restore and reconcile? You're beginning to wonder. You're beginning to question. You're beginning to have all these thoughts and doubts about God. And this is what the story of Luke enters into. And so let's read this passage together. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. It says this. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. And they were both what before God? They were both righteous, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. 
But they didn't have what? They didn't have a child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name what? John, who's that referring to? John the Baptist, right? And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink strong wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah." to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is what? Advanced in years. That's not a wise thing to say to your wife, is it? And if we think that's downplaying the age, it's actually enhancing the age that he's saying. So he's saying she is old, 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 okay? Not a very good thing to say about your wife. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Why is he silent? Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when the time of his service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Pretty beautiful story, isn't it? We wonder why Luke would have begun with a story like this in his gospel. We wonder why this is such a crucial point in the connecting of the Old Testament and the New Testament, but this is exactly what Luke is writing into. And so Luke brings up this couple, right? What are their names? Zechariah and Elizabeth. And what's the major problem that they have in life? 
There's, yeah, they're, well, old people's sort of a problem, but not really. <laughs> Their major problem is that they can't have kids. Now, now think about this for a second. We look at the, the story of Israel, and we're looking at 400 years of God not speaking to his people, and there's this time of silence. There's this time where people feel abandoned by God. And Elizabeth and the story of Zechariah is almost like a miniature version of that. Because here they are going through life, desiring to have children, longing to have children, waiting for God to answer their prayers to have children, and yet all this time, nothing has come. And having children in that culture is, is much more significant than we realize. Now, now, why would it be more significant to have children in that culture, maybe much more than ours? What was children to you? A little louder? Yeah, look after you when you're old. Carry on the family line, right? Carry on, I mean, that's inheritance, people taking the property that you work so hard to build up. And a sense of security. And so all their future hope that they had hasn't come into fulfillment their entire lives. And they've went through all this time, and they're battling through this time, and even though there's a deep disappointment there, there's still this righteousness, yes, that they have, but at the same time, even though the Scriptures call them righteous, why was Zechariah judged to be mute? Because he what? He didn't believe. He didn't understand. He didn't trust what God was doing. He, he couldn't fathom it. Now, he, here's where he is in life. There's this deep disappointment, and he come to the end, and, and now you have an angel saying that, oh, you're going to have a child. And I'm sure Zechariah and Elizabeth would have been wondering, well, where were you when, when we were 20? Where were you when we were 30? Where were you when we were 40? What, what is going on here? I don't understand how this could work in our old age. And yet at the same time, this story brings us back to another one in Genesis, which we talked about last week. We see a very similar problem back then. What was that story? Of who? Sarah and Abraham, right? This is almost a recap of that story, where God is going to say, I'm going to send hope, I'm going to send blessing, I'm going to advance my mission when you don't even comprehend that this could be possible. And I'm going to do it despite all the limitations that you see. I'm going to do it despite what you think could happen. And so we, we go through the story then and we realize this angst that they're feeling. And there, there's this, all this description that Luke has because, again, he's recording an eyewitness event here. He's, that's why he has so much detail here. But for so long, just like the people of Israel feel like God had abandoned them, we realize that Zechariah and Elizabeth felt as though their prayers had not been answered. But now they receive the greatest news that they could imagine, the blessing of a child. And what I find fascinating about this promised child, it answers two prayers at the same time. It answers the prayer of Zechariah and Elizabeth to conceive and have a child. But what other prayer does it answer? 
Any guesses? The prayers of a nation is answered. The longing and desire for a nation to say, God, where are you at work? God, when are you going to send your Messiah? God, when are you going to redeem and renew all of creation? The answer to that national prayer and even global prayer is answered here as well. Now, can you imagine how difficult it would have been for Zechariah and Elizabeth to wait for this child their entire lives? Can you imagine how difficult it was for Israel to walk through 400 years of silence and wonder where God was? None of us are patient people, are we? <laughs> Who here defines himself as a patient person? Anyone? There might be to some extent, right? But many of us are not patient people. Many of us really struggle with not only the timing and circumstances that we go through, but especially God's timing. And I'm sure that Zechariah and Elizabeth would have skipped the waiting and gone straight to the business of having a baby, but this is not the way of God. And God invited his people to wait. And God in his timing answered the prayers of Zechariah and Elizabeth while at the same time answering this global prayer. And what we see here is this beautiful reality of God at work in his time when he's ready. Now, the angel then silences Zechariah. And I don't know why this happens. I mean, there's many speculations. When I was studying this, I wondered if Gabriel, the messenger of God, was just like, Zechariah, you ask too many ridiculous questions. You have too much doubt. You're just going to have to be quiet and let God show you what he can do. <laughs> has anyone felt like God has taken them on that journey before in their life where God just says, you know what? You need to be quiet. You need to stop wallowing in disappointment. You need to stop wallowing in despair. You need to stop complaining and grumbling. And you just need to be silent and watch what I can do. Anyone ever experienced that in life before? Many times for me. Where God's just like, you know what? You need to stop and pause and just watch. Watch what I'm able to do. And I can just imagine Gabriel thinking too, sometimes God's people just talk too much and wait too little, right? Again, we are very impatient creatures as Christmas reveals every year. And so Zechariah exits the temple and he can't talk to anyone. He tries to act it out with no success. And then we see Elizabeth, what's she doing? She's hiding after this conceivement now. Again, I, I don't know the description of why she hid, but maybe it's just a very practical one. If, if you're that old and you're pregnant, does anyone believe that you're pregnant? No. <laughs> and so what does it just look like for an old woman? <laughs> yeah, it just looks like they need to go on a die or something, right? It's, it's not a good look. And so that's, I don't know if that's accurate, but that's just one of my assumptions of why she would have hid away, right? Um, there's not too many excuses. Even if she said she was pregnant, I'm sure no one would believe her anyway, right? And so she hides away, but she does something beautiful during that time. She's praying. She's worshiping. She's thanking God. She's saying, God has looked down upon me. In other words, God has, 
has cared about me. Even as Brenda brought up with her short story, I'm worthy for God to work through me. I'm worthy for God to do these things. He cares about me. I am his child and he loves me. He has kept his eye on me. And the beautiful thing that as she reflects on that, it took away what for her? It took away the reproach. This is another way. It took away some of the shame that she was experiencing. It took away the disgrace. I mean, I'm sure she would have suffered this emotional, verbal, and spiritual abuse for all these years because I'm sure there was self-righteous people who were telling her that she was cursed by God. That's why she couldn't have kids. Maybe rumors were spread about her. Maybe she doesn't love God enough. Maybe there's sin in her life. Maybe God's not blessing her because her husband's not as holy. Or maybe she has all these mistakes in her life and she's being punished for it. And all that reproach, all that shame, all that disgrace simply gets removed when she reflects on what God has done through her. God has blessed her with a son. Now she feels honored. And so she hangs around for these five months, thanking, praising God, celebrate what God has done. And we find again that this child in Elizabeth's womb has a name. And his name is John, John the Baptist. And he's going to be the one who prepares the way for the Messiah. He's going to be the one that answers the 400 years of agony and waiting and disappointment and despair among God's people. And God would use her to prepare the way for the Messiah. Beautiful, isn't it? It's a story of despair and disappointment that ends with God acting, bringing the ultimate act of hope to the world. And so to close and to summarize, I want to ask a question. How do you deal with disappointment in your life? How do you deal with despair? Because we can so easily blame circumstances we can so easily blame ourselves even. We can so easily blame the world around us. But the only way to really overcome disappointment in our life is to do what Elizabeth did and to see what Zechariah saw. That God in the midst of all of that is bringing the ultimate hope that none of us could ever fathom. And that God is still working towards his mission of renewal and redemption and reconciliation of all of creation. And if that hope is before us and that future is set before us, then we can trust God in everything. From my perspective, I look back and we, we count all the years after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and how far are we away from it now when we think about it? Around 2,000 years, right? It's a long time, isn't it? And, and just like Israel, I think we have this perspective of, of God, when are you going to act? God, what are you going to do? 
God, we're awaiting for King Jesus to return and establish the, the fullness of his kingdom. Why hasn't that time come yet? Is that not the same questions that the Israelites were asking in that 400 years of silence? God, why is this time not yet? And we go through all these difficult circumstances in life and we go through all this hardship and pain and all these things come at us and we just begin to be weighed down by them. And they begin to overcome us and overtake us and we begin to doubt everything. And yet a story like this reminds us that God is working and God continues to work. And even in this season, we can trust God Instead of blaming all our circumstances, ourselves, and the world, we can trust God for the hope that is set before us and realize that we were created for something more than this. I think one of the crucial parts of Advent that we often forget is, yes, Advent is about looking back on the arrival of King Jesus. It's about looking at the Christmas story. It's about reflecting on the good news of great joy that was brought because Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, Emmanuel. Yet at the same time, Advent is a season that also looks to something else. What else are we supposed to do during Advent season? We look forward, right? Advent's a season not just where we look at the Christmas story, but Advent's a season to remind us that what God has done then and there in the past, God will do again in the future. And that all the despair and disappointment and hardship that the people went through in the past that was answered with the fullness of God's hope, we will experience the same thing in the future. And even though the people waited for so long, felt like eternity to them, even for us, even though we await for so long and wonder what God is doing, that hope is still set before us. Again, Advent means this this coming of King Jesus, and just as Jesus came as a baby in Bethlehem, he will come as King Jesus in all his glory to redeem and renew and reconcile all of creation where all things will be made right again. And we realize that, yes, we go through hardship now, but we were created for another world. Paul in Romans 8, 24 to 25 says this. He says, for in this hope we were what? Anyone know? Saved. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with, does anyone know? Patience. (laughs) Patience. I find it fascinating that as Paul and so much of the New Testament authors, when they talk about hope, And understanding hope, there's this reality of patience that comes with it. Why? Because God's timing is not our own. Now he says this as well in in Hebrews, we read, we lay hold of hope by faith. 
Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. We hope because Jesus is seated at the right hand of God's throne with all authority and power in his hands. We hope because the Bible tells us that he's going to return to this creation to make all things new. We hope because Christ will one day quiet creation's groans and will taste and see the fullness of the kingdom of God. That is what we hope for. Amen, church? That is what we await. And so Advent teaches us to be patient. Advent teaches us that we need to trust God despite our pain, our disappointment, our sorrow, our confusion. God is at work even in the chaos of this world. Amen? That's our hope. And this message, I think for us in a time where our world is fracturing, where our time where our world is in chaos, when there's so much division, when there's so much disappointment, when there's all these things going on, what better time to be reminded that Jesus has come as king and he will return as king. We trust this because what God has done in the past, he will do again in the future. Let's pray to that extent. I'm going to read a prayer over you that I read some time ago. I can't remember who the author was. But it's a prayer that I've prayed a few times. And I just want to pray this over us as a congregation. And so just respond to it, not just with your ears, but with your heart. This is the prayer. I asked for strength that I might achieve. He made me weak that I might obey. I asked for health that I might do great things. He gave me grace that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. He gave me poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. He gave me weakness that I might feel a need of God. I asked for all things that I may enjoy life. He gave me life that I might enjoy all things. I received nothing I asked for. He gave me all that I hope for. Gracious Father, we come before you realizing that so often what we hope for, what we long for in this world, Lord, there's so many things that disappoint us because we don't get what we want. We go through seasons of despair and disillusionment. We go through seasons of doubt, wondering what you're accomplishing, if you're really there. And yet you remind us again and again, especially in this Christmas story, that you are the only thing we could ever hope for. And what you have in store for us is beyond what we could imagine or fathom. And yes, Lord, we get impatient. We get impatient waiting for the fruition of your kingdom. We look at the world around us and we see the chaos and we see the the turmoil that this world brings. 
And yet I pray that it would renew our hope and trust in what you alone are able to accomplish. Lord, we so often want to take control, and yet you are the sovereign God. You are the one who is in authority. And so teach us by your might a patience which gives us a peace that surpasses all understanding so that we could be faithful, righteous people awaiting the arrival of our King to make all things new, to make all things right. We thank you that you are the God who has set that hope before us. And in you, we continually renew our trust. We thank you, Jesus. And we pray in your name. Amen.